Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord. Be our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our first scripture reading is from Proverbs in the first chapter, verses 20 to 33. Listen for God's word to you today. Wisdom cries out in the street. In the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, have stretched out my hand and no one heeded, and because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you, when panic strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and be seated with their own devices. For waywardness kills the simple, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But those who listen to me will be secure and will live at ease without dread of disaster. Our psalm is the 19th. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. From the letter of James in the third chapter, verses 1 through 12. Not 
many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. And from the Gospel of Mark in the 8th chapter, verses 27 to 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The term Messiah is a loaded term. 
It literally means anointed one. And in the prophetic tradition, it means more specifically an anointed one like David, a king who will rule in peace and be a liberating warrior. Now the disciples, very understandably, like most Jews in first century Palestine, they were looking for that warrior to overthrow the occupying Roman force. Their hope was in violence and triumph over their enemies. Their hope was in a worldly kingdom. But Jesus had other ideas. For Jesus, being Messiah meant living a life of peace, teaching a way of peace. He was not a worldly king, but an eternal one. Rather than being a strong-arm figure that takes over the culture, he is instead perhaps a grassroots organizer being counter-cultural. His way of shaping the world did not come through great power or authority, but through meek persistence and an insistence on people reshaping their lives according to godly values rather than worldly ones. His was indeed a grassroots grassroots movement meant to reshape the community and the whole world from the ground up, from the heart of the Christian to the head of government. It didn't take long, however, for us to eschew our peaceful Christ in favor of the Christus Victor. When Constantine first carried the cross of Christ into battle in the fourth century, thereafter, Christ had a soldier's meaning. We adopted this idea of a conquering Christ, despite, after all, Jesus' insistence that he was no conqueror. We wanted a Christ cloaked in glory who would likewise shine glory upon us. And triumphalism increasingly became a driving force in the theology of the church. It's reflected in everything from our liturgy to our hymnology. You may recall a little hymn called Onward Christian Soldiers. It has given rise to ills like anti-Semitism, centuries of the church being the dominant world power, the crusades in which so many innocents were murdered, the imperative of explorers going to the new world to bring the heathen savages to Christ. More recently, It has given rise to our American confusion over civil religion and the separation of church and state. Even today, we still want a Christ who runs roughshod over the heathen and says what's the what. We want a Jesus who supports our prejudices and wants and wishes. We want a Jesus who nods in approval 
of our economics, our politics, our judiciary. We want a Jesus who blesses our values, whether they are consistent with what he taught or not. We want a Jesus whose name we can claim, even if it means we ignore the meaning of our claim. And Jesus rebuked them. Get over yourselves. Deny yourselves. What does it mean to deny oneself? Early in the Christian tradition, denial of oneself meant things like asceticism, self-mortification, fasting, voluntary poverty. What about for us? It seems fairly intuitive that denying oneself involves humility, recognizing that we more likely than not have at least some of it wrong. Ultimately, denying ourselves is an acknowledgement that God is the supreme sovereign and none other. It involves an honest examination of our motives. Why do we do what we do? Is anything about our thoughts and behavior motivated primarily by faith? Or is it primarily motivated by other things? Do we claim Christ because we want salvation for our own selves without regard to the salvation of the world? I recognized at a fairly early age that my thoughts and behaviors were not consistent with the faith I professed in Christ. And ever since then, my life has been spent actively admitting my mistakes and seeking to learn from them as best I might. Quite some time ago, I recognized that above all things, my ultimate loyalty is to God. Ten years ago yesterday, I, a Presbyterian, became a minister in a Baptist church. Even loyalty to my beloved cradle denomination took second place to my loyalty to God and to where God was sending me and to whom God asked me to minister. A little bit before that, I began allowing the gospel to inform how I engage the world personally, politically, economically. Now, given my preaching, which is so hard to hear, not only my preaching as gospel, but it is hard for many of my colleagues to be able to preach the gospel and have people hear it as such rather than hear it as partisanship in this day and age of political strife. Because after all, more and more, our mind is on human affairs rather than divine things. But it might surprise you that despite what you think you've heard from this pulpit, that I am politically unaffiliated and I have a very varied voting history. 
I have no loyalty to a political party, candidate, or agenda, only to the gospel of Christ. Yes, my political decisions, like my personal ones, are driven solely by the guidance of the gospel. I read the Bible, listen to the teachings of Jesus, discern what matters most to God, and then try to do my part to shape the world to fit that vision of the kingdom of heaven. Not in terms of legislating personal morality, which is what passes for people using their faith to guide their politics these days, but in terms of seeking justice and equality and human dignity, those things which God imbued us with from the very beginning and admonishes us to protect for all. In Jesus, I see God's plan that the whole world might be saved. In the prophets, I see that God intends salvation to be a temporal thing as well as an eternal thing. Salvation, righteousness and community is about here and now, not the hereafter. And so I am guided by the gospel. Which policies and candidates are going to follow the gospel imperative to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, bring good news to the poor, and protect the vulnerable? I'm no partisan creature. I'm a gospel creature. And in my life, that's what it looks like to deny myself. Because it did. It took a lot of self-denial, and it continues to take a lot of self-denial to live that way. Not only did I have to confront the ways in which I was living inconsistently with my faith, I had to examine my motives with honesty and humility. And I'll tell you something, as better than half Scottish, that's no, no small thing to do. Denying myself and obeying the gospel for me meant purposefully placing myself at odds with the vast majority of my own family. To this day, I have to endure being called stupid and misguided and that ultimate invest invective, bleeding heart. Funny thing, the term bleeding heart originates with the image of the compassionate Christ, so I'm not sure it's really the insult that people mean it to be. I have also had to endure the occasional ire of those who do not appreciate my preaching the gospel in a manner that plays out in real life. And believe me, if I didn't deny myself, I'd be throwing softball sermons every week in the interest of never upsetting anybody or making anybody uncomfortable because that is not what I want to do. But it is what God calls me to do, very often to my own exasperation. Jesus had no illusions about the intentions and expectations of his followers. He understood what they meant when they called him the Messiah. 
He knew what they wanted from him. Maybe that's why, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, he was constantly telling them to keep quiet, don't tell anybody about me, because he knew they didn't understand yet. And he wanted them to really understand what it meant for Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah and the Son of God before they said a word to anyone. He spent three agonizing years trying to get them to understand. And he has spent two agonizing millennia since trying to get us to understand. Jesus gives us another way. Not the way of the world. Not the way of partisan ideology. Not the way of violence and domination and exploitation. Not the way of manipulation and social hierarchy. Jesus gives us a way to live in this life that is wholly countercultural. A way to live so that all of society, from the bottom to the top, can be a just society where all people are created equal and everyone is cared for and everyone is a contributing member of society. When Jesus tells us to take up our cross, it is a call to loyalty to none before God. Not denomination, party, candidate, celebrity, no one. And our loyalty to God must shape all aspects of our lives. Nathan G. Jennings points out the radical ramifications of Jesus the Messiah. Those ramifications are indeed social political, economic, and they all stem from and are defined by the kingdom of God, not the other way around, as we so often put it. So what is left to us is to deny ourselves, to recognize that our own desires are not always in accordance with God's and definitely not always sanctioned by God, to see the need to reorient ourselves according to eternal life, which is not necessarily life without end, but a life lived in God. To deny ourselves is to put aside our own prejudices about who is worthy and who is not. To let go of the poisonous otherness and the anger and hatred we bear toward others. To deny ourselves is to recognize that all worldly principalities and concerns are as nothing compared to the compassionate and just reign of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if any want to become my disciples, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will have it. For God's glory, this day and always. Amen. I invite you now.
to stand as you are able and join our voices in singing the hymn in your insert, Will You Come and Follow Me?